with a new sutta. This is the 35th sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya called the Shorter Discourse to Satchika. Okay, and this sutta begins when the Blessed One was living at Vaisali in the great wood in the hall with the peak roof. And at that time, living in Vaisali, there was a certain sophist or disputant, a debater, by the name of Satchika. Now, Satchika was the son of two parents who were followers of the Jain teacher, Mahavira, who was also known as the Niganta Nataputta. The word Niganta was the general term which was used for the Jains in the section of India where the Buddha was living. The word means literally those without bond, without knots. And according to the commentary, the parents of Niganta had both been also debaters or disputants, and each of them had mastered 500, each one separately had mastered 500 different systems of philosophy and separately they had wandered all over India engaging in debates with different religious teachers and eventually they came to Vaisali and met each other and engaged in a mutual debate and neither of them could defeat the other then somehow they were urged to marry by the people of Vaisali and they had several daughters and the son, the youngest child was a son named Satchika and Satchika also became a master disputant from his parents he learned the different techniques of argumentation and learn different systems of philosophy and so he would travel around through different towns and villages in India finding out where the different groups of ascetics the wanderers were living and he would go to them and find out what their philosophy is and then he would engage them in a debate and since he was very well trained and very uh, clever in presenting his arguments he soon came to develop a reputation as just an undefeatable very formidable disputant and many religious followers ascetics were even afraid to meet him because he was known as such a powerful debater And according to the text here, it says that he was a debater and a clever speaker regarded by many as a saint. The word, the expression used in Pali is 
which means by many people considered to be a sadhu. The word sadhu might be understood sometimes just as meaning a recluse or an ascetic. Though I don't think that would apply here since later in the sutta we see that he's not quite a complete renunciant. He has his own dwelling place. So sadhu might also be considered as a saintly person. And so it would seem that the many people, the multitude, are not able to distinguish a true saint by his saintly qualities. But they would think that if somebody is a very clever uh, disputant, very skillful in arguing with other religious followers, that this means that he is a, <laughs> a saint himself. Okay, and so because he was such a powerful debater and had never previously known debate with anybody, when he came before the assembly of the people of Vesali, he would make this boast. He would say, say here we're in the text, paragraph 2, I see no recluse or Brahmin, even those who might be the head of an order, the head of a group, the teacher of a group, even one claiming to be an arahant, a samasambuddha, even one claiming to be accomplished and fully enlightened, and fully enlightened, who would not shake, shiver, and tremble, and would even sweat under the armpits, if he were to engage in debate with me, then to make his boast even stronger, he says, even if I were to engage in a debate with an inanimate wooden post, it would shake, shiver and tremble if it were to engage in debate with me. So what should be said if I were to engage in dispute with a human being. Okay, so this was the claim that Satchika makes at the beginning of the Sutta. Okay, then one morning the Buddha's disciple named Venerable Astaji dressed, put on his robes, and taking his bowl and the outer robe, he went into Vesali to collect his alms food. Now this monk named Asaji does not have a very... he's not known for many accomplishments. But there's one great accomplishment which he did fulfill. That is, he was the original Dhamma teacher of Venerable Sariputta. Maybe you will remember the incident that I've mentioned several times when Sariputta, before he became a Buddhist monk, he was a wandering ascetic and he had traveled all over India 
going from town to town looking for an enlightened master to show him the way to liberation. Then when he came back to Raja, Raja Giriya, completely disillusioned with his friend Moggallana, they became disciples of one of the famous ascetics of the period named Sanjaya. Then one day when Sariputta was walking through the town, he saw this monk Asaji walking very quietly on his arms round. And he was so impressed by the quiet, restrained, peaceful manner of this solitary monk that he immediately recognized that this monk truly must be an arahant, an awakened one, or somebody who is definitely on the path to arahantship. Then Sariputta respectfully approached Asaji and asked him for a teaching. And Venerable Asaji was extremely modest, even though he was an arahant. But since this was the very early period of the Buddha's uh, teaching career, of the Buddha's ministry, maybe just a few months. And so Asaji replied that I am not very learned in the doctrine and can't explain it in many words. Then Sariputta said, if you can't explain in many words, then just tell me the essence very briefly. Then Venerable Asaji recited that famous four-line stanza, whatever phenomena, dhammas there are that originate from a cause, the Tathagata, the accomplished one, has explained the cause and also their cessation. That is the teaching of the great recluse. And just hearing that little four-line gata, Sariputta was able to reach the first stage of awakening, the stage of stream entry. And because of that, Venerable Sariputta developed such great respect, reverence, and devotion towards Venerable Asaji that every day, if he was living in the same place where Venerable Asaji was staying, he would go to Venerable Asaji and do bandana to him, to, to pay homage to him. And if he was separated from Venerable Asaji, then just in his imagination every day, he would just imagine the figure of Venerable Asaji and would do homage to him. And so Asaji is not a renowned, famous monk for many diverse achievements, but he was one very quiet, but a very profound realization. And he was not the type who liked to engage in a lot of talk and discussion. He was very much a true recluse who liked to keep very much to himself and live a very quiet, contemplative life. And so Satchika saw 
venerable Asaji, wandering for alms in Vaisali, came up to him and exchanged courteous greetings with him. And then when he had finished this polite talk, he addressed a question to Venerable Asaji. He said, how Master Master Asaji does the recluse Gotama discipline his disciple? And how does the recluse Gotama usually present instruction to his disciples? Then Asaji answered in the following way. Here we're in paragraph four. He says, Aki Vesana, he uses the clan name when he addresses Satchika. He says, Aki Vesana, this is how the Blessed One disciplines his disciples, and this is how he presents his teaching, his instruction to his disciples. Then he quotes some lines of text. He says, Bhikkhu's material form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Formations, that's mental formations, are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. Bhikkhu's material form is not self Feeling is not self, perception is not self, formations are not self, consciousness is not self. All formations are impermanent, all things are not self. That is how the Blessed One disciplines his disciples, trains his disciples, and that is how the Blessed One usually presents instruction to his disciples. Now if somebody has a little familiarity with the Dhamma, it would will occur immediately to him that something seems to be missing here. What seems to be missing? Or what is missing? Rupa. Rupa is here, material form. Consciousness is there. Suffering. Where would suffering come? No, suffering, he got the right answer. Where would suffering come? Yeah, that's right. After impermanence, the usual way of teaching is to say first what is impermanent, then to say what is suffering, then to say what is not-self. We always have anicca, dukkha, anatta. Then the question will arise, 
Why does Venabalasaji completely skip over Dukkha? Actually, the commentary gives one explanation which I don't find convincing. (laughs) Not completely convincing. The commentary says that first, well, the the first part I would accept that Venerable Asaji is the type who doesn't like to engage in disputes and arguments is very quiet and reclusive type of monk. And so the commentary says that if Venerable Asaji realized that if he were to introduce the topic of dukkha, then Satchika would ask him, what is the purpose for which you have become a monk? Then Asaji would have said, to realize the Magga and Pala, the paths and fruits, then Satchika would have said, well, the Magga and Pala is, consists of the five khandhas, or at least four of the khandhas, the mental khandhas. And if the mental khandhas are dukkha, then it means that you're leading the holy life not to get free from dukkha, but to attain more dukkha. And then that would become a difficult problem for Asaji to escape from. I think that that kind of answer presupposes that Satchika would have been aware of the terms Magga and Pala, and would have known that they are to be analyzed in terms of the five aggregates, which I think presupposes that Satchika would have had a more sophisticated grasp of the Dhamma than is probably the case. And if none of you have any definite explanations to offer, I have to say that I don't have any myself, except I think it's quite possible that Venerable Asaji might have thought that if he introduced the topic of Dukkha, then it might have just rung a very loud bell in Satchika's mind and so Satchika would have been motivated on the spot to try to engage in a dispute over this topic and then Asaji didn't want to get involved in disputes but just to get on with his arms round and go back to the monastery. And also a little later we'll see, well maybe that's not the right explanation because later the Buddha gives the same explanation as Asaji gives. Anyway, maybe we just have to leave that as an unanswered question. So when Asaji replies in this way, then Satchika throws a challenge down at him. A challenge which he hopes will get conveyed by the Venerable Asaji to the Buddha himself. Satchika says, if that is what the monk, the recluse Gotama says, then we hear indeed what is disagreeable. Perhaps sometime or other we might meet that Master Gotama 
and have some conversation with him. Perhaps we might detach him from that evil view. Okay, then Satchika is not content simply to throw this challenge before Venerable Asaji, but in order to ensure that the word is going to spread and reach the Buddha, he starts boasting in the assembly of the Lichavis themselves. The Lichavis were the people of Vesali, the dominant clan of Vesali. So at the time, 500 of the Lichavis had met together in an assembly hall to conduct some of their business. The state of Vesali was not a monarchy like the state of Kosala or the state of Magadha. Rather, it was a republic, it seems, and they call an oligarchic republic in which the affairs of state were conducted by an assembly which was comprised of the leading families of the state. That particular group of families or clan were called the Lichavis. And so at this time, 500 of the Lichavis were sitting in the assembly hall conducting their state affairs. This would be the equivalent of a modern parliament. And so Satchika went to the assembly hall of the late Lichavis and said to them boastfully, he said, come on, come forth, good Lichavis, come forth. Today there will be some conversation between me and the recluse Gotama. If the recluse Gotama maintains right to my face what was maintained by one of his famous disciples, the Bhikkhu Asaji, then, now he uses some very picturesque similes to really show his pride and self-confidence. Just as a strong man might grab a long-haired ram by the hair and drag him to and drag him fro and drag him round about, so in debate I'll grab hold of the monk Gotama and drag him to and drag him fro and drag him round about. Just as a strong brewer's workman might throw a big brewer's sieve into a deep water tank and taking it by the corners might drag it to and drag it fro and drag it round about so in debate I'll grab hold of the monk Gotama and drag him to and drag him fro and drag him round about. Just as a strong brewer's mixer 
might take a strainer by the corners and shake it down and shake it up and thump it about, so in debate I will shake the recluse Gotama down and shake him up and thump him about. And just as a sixty-year-old elephant might plunge into a deep pond and enjoy playing the game of hemp washing, so I shall enjoy playing the game of hemp washing with the with the monk or recluse Gotama. What is called the game of hemp washing here, it explains in the commentary that it's I think the elephant, when it goes into the water, will, or when it goes to take a bath, will tear up various strands of hemp and collect them together into a kind of, like a brush, a thick brush of hemp reeds. Then it will dump the hemp reeds in the water and lift them onto, lift them up and then dash them against the stones first on one side, then another, then on front side, then on the back side, until the hemp reeds are just reduced to shreds. Okay, so uh, Satchika, the disputant, has now made four very big boastful claims about how he's going to utterly demolish the Buddha in debate. And so when the Lichavis hear this, then they have mixed prophecies or predictions about what is going to take place. Those Lichavis who do not have much, do not yet have much confidence and reverence for the Buddha and who are impressed by externals believe the boast of Satchika and so they think how can the recluse Gotama refute the assertions of Satchika on the contrary Satchika will refute the recluse Gotama's assertion. But then there are some Lichavis who have already gained unshakable confidence in the Buddha's Dhamma and so they will say who is this Satchika that he could refute the Blessed One's assertion? On the contrary the Blessed One will refute the assertions of Satchika, the Niganta's son. Then Satchika, together with these 500 Lichavis, went to the monastery where the Buddha was staying. And Satchika went up to a number of bhikkhus who were walking up and down 
and asked them where the Buddha was staying and the bhikkhus directed uh, Satchika to the great wood, the forest around the monastery where the Buddha had gone for the day to sit in meditation. So Satchika, together with the Lichavis, then entered the Mahavana, the great wood, and approached the Blessed One. He exchanged greetings with the Blessed One, sat down to one side and exchanged the usual introductory, courteous talk with him. And the Lichavis also came up and introduced themselves. Then Satchika began in a very polite, humble way. He wants to be cunning. He's not going to begin by boasting and trying to intimidate the Buddha, but it's the way a skillful disputant would be trained to do, to, in a sense, to play dumb, as though he doesn't understand very much, and he just wants to get a certain point clarified. And he asks his question in a very humble manner, saying, I would like to question Master Gotama on a certain point, if Master Gotama would grant me the favor of an answer. And so the Buddha says, ask whatever you like, Agivesana. Then Satchika asked the Buddha that very same question he had asked Venerable Asaji. How does Master Gotama discipline his disciples? What kind of instruction does he present to disciples? And the Buddha answers Satchika in the same way that Asaji had done. Even though the Buddha would normally go through all three characteristics, maybe the reason why he followed them two out of the three main points of the teaching. And so the Buddha repeats the same reply that Satchika had given. And now Satchika does not set out directly to try to confute the Buddha's statement, but rather, like a skilled debater again, he's going to try to undermine the Buddha's position in an indirect way by using a simile. This was one of the the standard instruments of debate in the time of the Buddha and even throughout the history of philosophy in India is always regarded as very a very powerful asset to one's position to be able to present a simile to clinch one's point. But in this case Satchika does not begin directly by making his point, but rather he tries right at the outstart to clinch his implicit point by presenting a simile. 
So he says, a simile occurs to me, Master Gotama. And the Buddha says, explain that simile. And Satchika continues. He says, just as when seeds and plants, whatever their kind, reach growth, increase and maturation, they all do so in dependence upon the earth, based upon the earth, and just as when strenuous works whatever of whatever kind are done, all are done in dependence upon the earth, based upon the earth, so too, Master Gotama, a person having material form as self based upon material form produces merit or demerit. Then he repeats the same thing with all five aggregates. A person having feeling as self based upon feeling, he produces merit or demerit and so for perception, the mental formations, and consciousness. A person having consciousness as self, based upon consciousness, produces merit or demerit. And so here, implicitly, what Satchika is doing is defying the Buddha's position of non-self by coming forth by means of this simile with an assertion of selfhood. Here we could just schematize the simile. So if we schematize this simile we can say that in the case of the comparison, the earth is the support or ground or basis, and based on the earth, there come forth all the different types of plant life and vegetation. Or again, with the earth as the ground or the source, as the basis or support, all the different activities in the world take place. So in the same way Satchika is arguing, the self should be seen as the support or basis of the person, say the fundamental essence of the person. And this self which is the essence of the person, he implicitly identifies as the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And he says that the person who has each of these five aggregates as his essential self, by means of these five aggregates, 
by means of the self performs various meritorious and demeritorious deeds. And so he presents his position. His position is contradictory to the Buddha's position. And yet, he doesn't come right out and directly contradict the Buddha, but rather he's trying to undermine the Buddha's position by first setting out the simile to convince the Buddha that the simile is valid, since nobody can deny that plants come out or grow up on the basis of the earth, and nobody can deny that the earth is the foundation for all the activities that take place in the world. And so if one grants the simile, then it seems that one has to also grant the subject of the comparison, namely that for the various meritorious and demeritorious activities that a person performs, he requires a self as the support for those activities, as the agent who performs those activities. And so Satchika gives a somewhat sophisticated it's a philosophically justified presentation of what we ordinarily, the ordinary person, assumes naturally to be the case. That if there are activities, then there must be a self as the essence of the person who performs these activities. And this self, Satchika says, at least he implies, will be identified as form, feeling, perception, the mental formations, and consciousness. But now the Buddha doesn't want to beat around the bush with these indirect arguments. And so he comes straight out and asks Satchika, Are you asserting, thus, material form is myself, feeling is myself, perception is myself, formations are myself, consciousness is myself? In other words, he's, the Buddha is saying, Are you really contradicting, contradicting me? And Satchika admits that this is the case. He says, I do assert thus, Master Gotama, material form is myself, feeling is myself, perception is myself, formations are myself, consciousness is myself. So he says, I do assert this. Then he turns around <laughs> to look at all of the lichavis <laughs> and says, and so does this great multitude. 
In other words, he <laughs> he's trying to support himself by appeal to the masses, thinking that the majority can't be wrong. <laughs> He wants to put it to a, a vote as though it's a matter of you know, democratic vote of the majority to decide what is right and what is wrong in philosophical matters. But the Buddha cuts off that uh, tactic of Satchika. He says, what does this great multitude have to do with you, Agi Vesana? Please confine yourself to your own assertion alone. And so Satchika at least has the courage of his convictions. And so he comes out and says, Then, Master Gotama, I assert thus, material form is myself, feeling is myself, perception is myself, formations are myself, consciousness is myself. Okay, now he's just come right out into the open and adopted a full-fledged, what we call Atavada, a full-fledged doctrine of self, a doctrine which identifies self with the five aggregates. Okay, now the Buddha is going to examine this view of Satchika. And so he says, in this case, Agivesana, I shall ask you a question in return. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, Agivesana? Would a head-anointed noble king like King Pasenadi of Kosala or King Ajatasattu of Magadha, exercise the power in his own realm to execute those who should be executed, to find those who should be fined, and to banish those who should be banished. Here the Buddha is also showing that he too can be quite skillful as an indirect debater, or as one who debates using indirect an indirect strategy. He's not going to confront Satchika head-on and contradict his position. Then, if he were to do that, then Satchika would just either immediately feel humiliated or else it would just turn into an argument of my position is better than yours. The Buddha's tactic is to try to draw out from Satchika the admission of a certain position. which is actually incompatible, logically incompatible with Satchika's assertion of selfhood. Then once 
he gets Satchika to make that admission, then he will throw that admission right back into Satchika's face and say, well then, can't you see that you're working on the basis of a self-contradiction? And then Satchika will have to admit defeat. <coughs> And the Buddha proceeds in a somewhat, say, stealthy manner by getting, again, using an analogy, just as Satchika did. And get Satchika first to admit the analogy, which is indisputable, since in those days kings were absolute monarchs who could do whatever they wanted in their realm. And so Satchika says, Master Gotama, a noble king like Pasenadi or Ajatasattu, would exercise the power in his own realm to execute those who should be executed, to find those who should be fined, and to banish In the Republican communities, like the state of Vaisali, for example, the Vajians will exercise such power. And in the Mala Republic, the Malians will exercise such power. All the more so should a head-anointed noble king like Basenadi or Ajatasattu be able to exercise this power. Okay, so the point is that the king is truly the king, truly the master of his realm, because he can exercise power in any way he wants within his realm. Now the Buddha, now that he's gotten that admission from Satchika, in terms of the analogy, now he's going to make the application. He says, this is paragraph 13 now, what do you think of this Agivesana? When you say thus, material form is myself, do you exercise any such power over that material form as to say, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. I think there's quite a bit which is implicit in this statement. Maybe it's not so easy for us to see today, though Satchika would have realized the point immediately since he was somewhat a skillful, philosophically trained and knew, could see at once the implications of various positions. So let me try to draw out what is implied here. Now the word 
Atta, as it was used by in the time of the Buddha, Atman, had as an essential implication of its meaning the sense of being susceptible to the exercise of control, of mastery, so that if something is truly oneself, what one truly is in essence, then one should be able to exercise mastery over that something in such a way that one can govern it with absolute control according to one's own will. So, if one says, the body is myself, then one should have such mastery or control over the body that one can say, let my body be thus. That is, let me always remain young, beautiful, alive, healthy. Let my body not be thus. May this body not grow old, not fall sick, not degenerate, not die. If feeling were truly oneself, then one would be able to exercise mastery over feeling so that one can just determine let me experience only pleasant feelings and never painful feelings. But because feeling is not ourself, feeling changes and we become subject to painful and disagreeable feelings. Feelings do not arise through determination by our will, but they arise from their own conditions. And we don't have that absolute mastery over feelings, so that we just have to make a mental determination and feelings will conform to our determination. And the same with perceptions. If we had mastery over perceptions, we would be able to think, let me perceive only beautiful and agreeable objects, never painful, disagreeable objects. If we had mastery over the mental formations, we should be able to determine, let me think only lofty, noble, worthy thoughts. Let me have all wonderful and magnificent personal qualities. Let me never think any disagreeable, um, low, ignoble thoughts. Let me never have any bad personal qualities. And just by making that mental determination, our minds will immediately follow.
And similarly with consciousness, one would have that absolute control over consciousness. But when we examine these five aggregates that we identify with self, then we see that they are not subject to our control. The body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, even consciousness, what seems to be most inward, most personal, all these are subject to conditions and they depend on their conditions and they're determined by their conditions and so we cannot master them because we have no mastery over their conditions. And so this is the essential argument that the Buddha is presenting here. It's really, it's the same argument that he presented to his first five disciples in the Anatta Lakana Sutta. That what is not subject to complete mastery and control is actually not our self. And so implicitly, if one fathoms the significance of this, implicitly we can see that this means that the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness are anatta, not ourself. And Satchika here in this debate is already just from the Buddha's question. Satchika is a very, very sharp fellow. And so he sees at once what the Buddha is driving at. But here he's surrounded by 500 lichavis to whom he's boasted that he's going to whip the Buddha to pieces in debate. And so he doesn't want to bury his head in shame. And so when the Buddha asks this question, Satchika remains silent. Then a second time the Buddha asks the question. A second time the Buddha remains silent. Uh, a second time Satchika remains silent. Then, before the Buddha asked the question a third time, he gave him a little warning a warning that might seem very frightful to us. He says, the text says, Then the Blessed One said to him, Agi Vesana, answer now. This is not the time to be silent. If anyone, when asked a reasonable question up to the third time by the Tathagata, the accomplished one, still does not answer, his head splits into seven pieces there and then. And just I have to <laughs> give a little explanation of this since it could lead to some misunderstanding. We should understand, not understand that the Buddha himself 
feels any malice towards that person and that the Buddha is going to manipulate in some way cosmic forces in order to have that person's head split into seven pieces. The Buddha himself is the Mahakarunika, the great compassionate one who has no ill will at all towards anyone. And the splitting of the head does not come from the Buddha's decision. But this is just like a fixed cosmic principle, it seems, that if someone engages the Buddha in an argument or a debate, and as the discussion unfolds, the discussion reaches a point where the Buddha asks a legitimate question, a question which has been necessitated by the flow of the back and forth argument, and that person does not reply, then of course the Buddha will ask the question again, and if the person remains silent a second time, then the Buddha <laughs> will not ask the question a third time without giving this initial warning. And whenever the Buddha gives the initial warning, it always turns out that the person will reply. <laughs> and so it's, there's no recorded instance of somebody still refusing to answer and having his head split into seven pieces. Okay, now that we've reached this rather dramatic climax of the argument, we'll stop for the evening. And now, that means you have to come back next week to find out what happens. Are there any you know, questions on what has been presented so far? the omission of dukkha. Actually, that would be the case. One could actually derive both anicca and dukkha from anatta. But, I mean, one can do that, but within that initial, that introductory passage of the sutta, it seemed that there was just no point in doing that since that would have eliminated the need for this discussion to take place and there would be no sutta. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.